Open your Bible with me today, if you would, to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. We'll begin in verses uh, 15 through 20, uh, but we'll be in uh, several other places of God's Word today as well. We're in the fourth of a series of five sermons called Deep Roots, Biblical Foundations of Our Baptist Heritage. We've looked at three of these Baptist distinctives over the last three weeks. Today, we look at the fourth. We started with a high view of God's Word, that this uh, Holy Spirit-inspired, God-ordained, inerrant, infallible Word is our highest authority for all things pertaining to salvation and godly living. We then moved on to the importance of the believer's church, that the church of Jesus Christ that spans time and history and space is only composed of those who have come to trust in him as Lord and Savior, to be believers in Christ as the risen one who died for their sins. We looked last week at the priesthood of all believers, that all Christians have been called and given access uh, by God through Jesus to serve and minister in the presence of God to a hurting world. And today we come to the fourth distinctive, which is maybe less theological and more practical in nature. And we'll see this play out over the next few minutes. Today we look at the fourth Baptist distinctive, historic Baptist distinctive, which is the autonomy of the local church. The autonomy of the local church. The main idea that we'll be working with today is this, that Jesus gives the local church great power in the form of authority to govern itself. That's what it means to be autonomous, for a local church like ours to govern itself. Now, those of you who are uh, comic book fans know the story of Peter Parker, who was bitten by a radioactive spider and turned into Spider-Man. And as he was fleshing out his new abilities, he found himself in different uh, situations. In the, uh, in the first cinematic adaptation of the Spider-Man story um, uh, that, that came out in, I think, the late 90s, maybe around 2000, Peter Parker, after being bitten by a radioactive spider and, and learning that his body is, is changing and he has strength that he didn't know about, gets into a fight at school, and, uh, and he ends up winning this fight in very astounding fashion, uh, embarrassing a bully uh, in a way that got him a lot of acclaim. Well, Peter Parker, whose uh, parents had died, is being raised by uh, his aunt and uncle, his uncle Ben and his aunt May. And one day, uh, his Uncle Ben is uh, driving Peter to, uh, to, uh, to a museum where Peter's supposed to meet up with some classmates. And there in the car, they start talking. And Uncle Ben is concerned about Peter and this newfound power that he has. Being a father figure to Peter, Ben says to Peter, he says, Remember that with great power comes great responsibility. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. With great power comes great responsibility. When we consider this Baptist distinctive of the autonomy, the self-governing authority of the local church, we recognize that Jesus has given the church great power in the form of authority to govern itself. And we do well to responsibly handle that authority that Jesus has given to us. I hope that we come to understand today our responsibilities as a local church, as a local body of believers the responsibilities that Christ has given to us, and that we would come to exercise our collective authority with much wisdom and grace as we follow Jesus. Look with me at Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20, uh, and stand with me, if you would, as we honor God by reading his word. Matthew records uh, the words of Jesus here. Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. That word is ecclesia. It means assembly. Tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Jesus gives the local authority great power in the form, or he gives the local church great power in the form of authority to govern itself. Jesus gives, as we see in Matthew 18 first, Jesus gives the local church authority to protect the reputation of Christ. That's what Matthew 18 verses 15 through 20 is all about. It's all about protecting the reputation of the gospel, the reputation of the Savior whose name Christians carry. In this passage, we have a very simple uh, process for dealing with what many have come to call church discipline, for dealing with a believer, a brother or a sister who walks away from the faith or who begins living in unrepentant sin. And the pattern is this. First, if someone is sinned against or recognizes the sin of another brother or sister in the congregation, they're to go to them privately, one-on-one. Say, hey, brother, sister, you're living this way. It's contrary to our faith. It's contrary to what God has called us to do. Uh, I think you need to repent and, and change your life and return to the faith that you once professed. And, and the good news is, if that brother, if that sister that we address privately repents, it's great. You've won your brother. You've won your sister. They've, they've turned from sin and returned to faith in Christ. That's very good. But what if they don't? What if they say, no, there's not a problem with the way that I'm living, and I'm going to keep living the way that I am, and you can't tell me otherwise? Well, Jesus instructs us to go to that person again a second time, but with two or three others, so that every charge might be uh, founded on the testimony of, uh, of two or three witnesses. So if that individual says, no, I'm going to live my life the way that I want, what we do as brothers and sisters, as uh, uh, members of the family of faith that is the local church, is we take a couple others with us that maybe have seen this person's uh, pattern of rebellion, pattern of unrepentance, and we go all together to say, look, it's not just me, it's all of us. We, the, the three, the four of us really care about your life in Christ and your holiness. We want you to repent so that your life isn't destroyed. The same is true if that brother, if that sister hears the testimony or the, the, the call to repentance from those two or three others and they repent, that's a good day. It's a day of rejoicing. Someone has turned from sin to trust Jesus more again and to walk in sanctification. But if that individual doesn't listen to two or three others, Jesus says, take it to the church, take it to the ecclesia, take it to the assembly. Now, almost every place in Scripture in the New Testament, that word church refers to the local church, a church like ours in a particular locality that is gathered together, covenanted together in the same confession of faith, same profession that Jesus is Lord, walking in sanctification together. Jesus says that the final authority for bringing a person to repentance, addressing public sin, is among the whole body of believers. If he refuses to listen to you privately or in a small group, take it to to the whole church. And if he refuses, if that wayward brother, that unrepentant sister, refuses to listen even to the call of the whole body to repent, then the whole church is to treat them as a Gentile or tax collector. 
We would call this excommunication. Now, excommunication sounds like a a really dark word, a really scary word, but what it most often means is removing that person from receiving the Lord's Supper, removing, removing that person from communion. Now, if a person is walking in unrepentant sin, the place that they need to be is in the church, hearing the gospel with the influence of, and prayer of other brothers and sisters, other believers around them. But we don't want to affirm their faith uh, as they walk in unrepentant sin by allowing them to take the Lord's Supper over and over. So we, refer, we, we, we would hold them, the church was to hold them back from that in order to affirm that what they need is repentance and to come to a return to a living faith in Christ. What is interesting for us in this passage is that the final authority for affirming or disaffirming a person's profession of faith lies not with the individual, not even with the small group, but it lies with the church. Church, we have the responsibility by Christ to affirm one another's walk with Jesus, one another's faith in him. We are to judge the consistency and integrity of an individual's life altogether as a body. The good news is that Jesus affirms the judgment of the assembly with his own presence. Verse 20 says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, very often we apply this verse to issues of prayer, matters of prayer. When two or three are gathered and praying about a thing, there is Jesus with us. And that is, that is true. But see the context in which Jesus first says these words. He says it in the context of church discipline. When the church is gathered to make, a, to make judgment, to make a determination, to affirm or disaffirm a person's profession of faith in Christ, dependent upon how they're living their life, Jesus says, you have my authority. My presence is with you to make this decision. Now, judgment is often a very negative term for us. We don't like to use it. We don't like it used against us. But judgment shouldn't be such a negative term. We often say things like, it's not for me to judge. I can't judge another person's heart. Only God knows the heart. I can't tell that person they're not a Christian. Friend, you're right. You can't know everyone's heart with 100% certainty. And the good news is that you alone don't have the authority to judge a person's profession of faith. But Jesus says in Matthew 18 that the church does. The church does have authority to say to someone who's living in unrepentant sin, you seem to be professing that Jesus is the Christ but, and that he is Lord, but you're living so differently. Your profession and your life don't match up. So we're going to look at the evidence of your life and say your profession is not certain. Your profession is not consistent. The word judgment is negative, but, but it shouldn't be. Think about what a judge does in court. A judge doesn't consider the heart of the defendant before them. They don't consider necessarily the intent of the person in front of them. They consider the observable and evidentiary facts, and then they apply the law that never changes to the facts of that case. It doesn't matter how a defendant feels about what has done. What matters is that they have done something and what the law says. And so in the church, we're not making final judgment about a person's salvation or condemnation, but rather we're making judgment about a person's consistency, about the integrity of their life with their profession of faith. And Jesus has given us authority to do this. Now we see this authority played out, practiced in the life of the church. You'll see on the screen behind me, if you want to turn there quickly, you can. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul addresses a problem of unrepentant sin in the church at Corinth. There he says, uh, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 5, it's actually reported, Paul says, that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Are you not rather to mourn? 
Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. If I could interpret what Paul is saying here a little bit, let this one who has done this thing be treated as a Gentile and a tax collector. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul continues in verse 12. He says, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So here's the situation in the church at Corinth. A man is having an illicit affair with his stepmother. That should cause all of us to do one of those, have a conniption, right? And, 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 and Paul says, this is crazy because not even the pagans tolerate this. And yet you all are arrogant as though the grace of Jesus Christ allows you to live this way. This is nuts. You should be mourning this person's unrepentant sin. Let him who's done this thing be removed from among you. Let his profession of faith not be affirmed until he's walking in repentance. So Paul tells the church, and he says, even in verse 4, that Jesus is present with them. That Jesus gives the power to the church to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Which means to, to, to not affirm his faith in Christ so that he will feel the weight of his sin. So that his spirit would be saved in the day of the Lord. So that feeling the weight of his sin, he would be rescued. He would repent of it and he would come back to life in grace uh, in following Jesus. Now, the good news is this kind of church discipline in the life of the church in 1 Corinthians uh, 5 takes place and it results in a good way. If we go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we read these verses. Paul writing a second time to the church at Corinth. He says, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, and at this point, most scholars, most biblical scholars believe that this one that Paul is referring to in verse 6 is the same one who was removed from the body in 1 Corinthians 5. For such a one, this punishment, this excommunication by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and to comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, for this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are be obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. The good news is that in the life of this one at the church in Corinth, excommunication, church discipline worked in a redemptive fashion. It it caused him to feel the weight of his sin, to know that he needed uh, the grace of Jesus Christ. And so he returns in, in sorrow and repentance for his sins. And Paul says, now affirm that one. It's good. He has done the right thing. He has brought his life into consistency with this profession of faith. And so now rejoice in this and bring him back into the body. Otherwise, excommunication carried on too long would crush the man. Jesus gives the church great authority to protect the reputation of Christ and the reputation of the gospel. And we do this. We do this by pointing out one another's sins and calling each other to repentance. And when unrepentance uh, continues on for a long, long time, the church affirms the gospel of Jesus, that we are saved, we are forgiven of sin by God's grace through faith in Jesus to live a life made holy by the power of God through the Holy Spirit living in us. We affirm that gospel by saying to those who don't repent, 
you need not to be a part of the Lord's Supper. We can't affirm your salvation until you begin walking in repentance. This kind of authority is, is kind of uh, scary, feels kind of weighty to a church, and oftentimes we, are, we might be hesitant to exercise it. But let's consider where we have been over the last three weeks as, as we've considered these different Baptist distinctives and the conclusions that we have come to about this. First of all, we need to ask ourselves, is the Bible our final authority for all things pertaining to salvation and godliness? Is the church of Jesus Christ only composed of born-again believers? Is the local church meant to display with accuracy and purity the membership of the church of Jesus Christ by by reflecting a, a, a life of belief and faith and growth and sanctification? Have we all as believers been tasked with, the pre, with priestly access to God and ministry responsibilities? If the answer to all these questions is yes, then it follows that the local church, like we at First Baptist West Albuquerque, as, representative, as a representative priesthood of believers and a representative body of Christ, we have the authority to call its members, to call one another to integrity between our profession of faith and our actions to do what Jesus has given us authority to do in Matthew 18. And as a priesthood, to make determination, to make a judgment about those situations where a person's ongoing pattern of sin betrays their profession of faith. Jesus has given us authority to govern the membership of the church, which, which looks like protecting the gospel. Friends, in light of this, because Jesus has given us this authority, He's given us his power to govern ourselves in this way. We must be actively invested in one another's spiritual lives. We must be actively invested in one another's spiritual lives. We can't know whether other believers in the church, brothers and sisters, are are living with integrity between their life and their profession of faith unless we actually are invested, unless we actually know each other and are walking in life together. Now, one of the, the great benefits of the small groups that we have, and especially the grow groups that we have that are meeting presently on Wednesday nights, and I pray grow far beyond that, is we have opportunity to spend time in God's word and in prayer together, sharing about our struggles, about our weaknesses, where we need God's help in our life, confessing sin to each other, and asking for God's help in repentance. We, we have opportunity to be actively invested in one another's spiritual lives. But in order to carry out and to practice the authority that Jesus has given to the church in Matthew 18 to protect the gospel, we need to know each other. We need to be invested in one another's lives spiritually. And so, friend, if you're not doing that as a member of the church already, I invite you to. Find another brother or sister. Find a grow group to to join. Uh, uh, Try to plug into a, a small group. I know it's hard to do that right now with all the COVID restrictions, but reach out to someone and say, I need you in my life, and I know that you need me in yours to keep one another walking in Christ to do what Christ has called us to do. Jesus gives authority to the church to protect the reputation of Christ. He also gives the church authority to do a second thing, and that is to call their own leaders, to call their own leaders. And we'll deal with these much more uh, quickly than we did than we did the, the, the last, but I wanted to take time working through that, that first responsibility because it's really important Jesus gives the church authority to call their own leaders. If you look at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, we see this displayed in one area, and then we'll look at Titus 1 and see it displayed in another. In Acts 6, 1 through 6, we read that in these days, this is the, uh, the, the uh, early days of the, the church in Jerusalem, the first Christian church. In these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jewish background believers, arose against the Hebrews, the Jewish-speaking uh, Jewish background believers, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. 
So the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples, the whole church in Jerusalem, and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we'll devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse seven is great. After this, the word of the Lord continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Here we see in Acts chapter 6 when a serious need arose in the church that had the potential to split the church, to cause such a a conflict, such a divide that the church would split. The apostles, knowing that the enormity of the task before them, caring for these widows who had been neglected, would take attention away from proclaiming the gospel and praying for the people and with the people, they gave the responsibility to the church, the whole number of disciples, to select seven servant leaders who would see to this task. Most people see this as the appointment of the first deacons. Now, the word deacon is not used in Acts 6, but the kind of work that these men are doing looks like what, uh, in a general sense, deacons do. But what's important for us to note here is that the apostles do not take it upon themselves to assign men to this task. But the apostles call the whole church, the full number of disciples, to appoint these men. Jesus gives authority to the church to call their own leaders, to call servant leaders who will care for the physical needs of the church. Looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, the short letter that Paul writes to Titus as he is serving there uh, on the island of Crete. He says in verse 5, This is why I left you in Crete, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders. Uh, That word elder is used synonymously with pastor or overseer in the New Testament. Elders in every town as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul here has left his ministry partner Titus on the island of Crete to appoint elders, to appoint pastors in each church town by town as he works around the island. What is significant for our purposes here is that same word appoint, appoint elders, is the same word that was used in Acts 6. Appoint men to this task of service, the choosing of the seven there. The scholars here have inferred that Paul is following for elders a similar process for the seven sort of proto-deacons that were selected in Acts chapter 6. The congregation are to take note of what men among them possess the qualifications of an elder, a pastor, overseer. And they are to submit these men to Titus for formal appointment as their pastor elders. Even the qualifications of what these men's lives must look like speak to the congregation's knowledge of these men and their character. Certainly Titus would not have been able to know all of these men personally to observe their lives so intimately. He would have had to rely upon the testimony of the believers there in every city in Crete regarding these men because he wouldn't have been able to know them all. What's clear from Scripture is that there's no overarching authority outside of the local church, the local assembly, that has this authority to call its own leaders. But the biblical pattern is that church by church, congregations were using God's word to evaluate the members among them for those who were qualified to hold office as elders, as deacons, to lead and to serve the church. 
This is a, a, a great responsibility and a great authority that God has given to the local church to call its own leaders, not to, to rest upon the recommendation of someone outside or the assignment by another denominational body to say, this is who your pastor will be. This is who your, el- your, your elders or your deacons will be. But the church, we as a church, call our own. Because we've been given this responsibility to call our own leaders, brothers and sisters, we must be training up and looking out for these servant leaders among us. If Jesus has given the church the authority to call their own leaders, then he's also given us the responsibility to train leaders, to call people up, to recognize those that God has has called and led and brought to a place of being able to serve and to lead in the body. We shouldn't rely, even as a church, upon your pastors for recognizing these people. Although Pastor Danny and I hopefully would, would be a helpful resource in recognizing who God may be calling and leading to serve and, and, and to lead in this particular way. But friends, we need the whole church in this regard. All of us need to be training one another up. All of us need to be looking out for those that God has called to serve the body. Jesus gives authority to the church to protect the gospel. He gives authority to the church to call their own leaders. And he gives authority to, church to, to the church to carry out ministry, to do the work that he's called us to do in the way that we feel convinced by God to do it. In Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, I don't know that we're just blowing through scripture here today, but uh, I hope that, you're, hope that you're following with me. We read these, these verses. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we also know as Paul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they, the church, laid their hands on them and sent them off. Jesus gives authority to the church to carry out ministry. Acts 13 is interesting. Because when the early church began growing, they also began to see the need to take the gospel to new people intentionally, on, with intentionality, on, on purpose. And so as we read here in Acts 13, the church at Antioch, which, by the way, was the first church to preach the gospel to Gentiles in their own city, the church gathers together for worship. Now, we see in Acts 13 that the church had been fasting and praying. They'd been giving themselves to, uh, intently to discerning the will of God in some or another area of their life. And given the context of what takes place in this chapter, it may be for this purpose. They're feeling that God is calling them to, to send someone to another city with the gospel of Jesus. So they're praying and fasting about who that might be. And as they're doing this, as they're worshiping, praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit says... Notice, it's not an individual of the congregation, but the Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Can you imagine being at this prayer meeting, at this worship service? The, the, the whole church together, praying and, and fasting. And I don't know if the Holy Spirit spoke audibly, but, but perhaps in the middle of all this, one of the members, maybe it was, maybe it was Simeon who was called Niger. Maybe he speaks up in this prayer meeting and says, uh, guys, as we've been praying, I just... I, I feel like the Holy Spirit has said that we need to take Saul and Barnabas and, and we need to send them to another city with the gospel. We, we need to send them as missionaries. I don't know if they would have known that word, but we need to send them out to take the gospel to somewhere it hasn't gone yet. And another person pipes up. Maybe it was, uh, maybe it was uh, 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 Lucius of Cyrene or Menean or something. And they, they speak and say, you know, uh, you know, Simeon, I, as I was praying, I, I felt the same thing. 
I sense the same. And another one pipes up. Says, yeah, me too. And another one, me too. I thought the same thing. I felt the same thing. And, and all of a sudden, you've got the whole congregation going, seems like the Holy Spirit is saying, we need to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that God has called them to. So they pray a little bit more. They get affirmation, confirmation from God about this direction of ministry. And they get affirmation from the Holy Spirit in prayer. And so they lay hands on Saul and Barnabas and off they go, the first missionary duo in Christian history. Notice in this whole narrative, among this church at Antioch, there's never once somebody who pipes up to say, I think we should first call down to Jerusalem. Let's, let's, let's just let's send a messenger to the apostles, to James, the brother of Jesus, who's leading the church in Jerusalem. Let, we need to send someone down there. We need to get word from Peter so we can get permission to do this. Let's take care of that first. Nobody in Antioch says this. And there's nothing in Luke's telling of the story to indicate that this is somehow bad or wrong or rebellious of the church not to do. It isn't the elders of the church on their own who make this decision. It's not a presbytery of regional pastors. There's no archbishop over the church at Antioch who tells them you need to send Saul and Barnabas for this. No, the church collectively, believers of many different ethnic backgrounds, men and women all gathered together, hear this call from God and take this direction of ministry. They determine that sending a missionary team to yet unreached places of the world is what they must do as part of their gospel ministry. And then consider, friends, how profitable that decision, how profitable for the gospel and for the kingdom of Christ that ministry decision was. Local churches have the authority, the autonomy to carry out ministry as they prayerfully discern God is calling them to do. This is just what the church at Antioch did. Vacation Bible schools, Sunday schools, small groups, home groups, one-on-one discipling, elementary school ministry, sending missionaries, door-to-door evangelism, relationship evangelism, planting a church, building a building, conducting prison inmate Bible studies, having music ministries or teaching ministries. The local church has authority and autonomy from Jesus Christ to determine to do any of these or none of these or any other ministry as the Holy Spirit of God leads them to do. This is good news. And this is great freedom to to conduct ministries. We'll feel that, that God through the Holy Spirit is leading us to do. But because of this great power and this, this great authority that Jesus has given to us to determine what ministries we would do as a local church, we have the responsibility of bathing every ministry and decision in prayer. If Jesus has given us this great opportunity, this great authority to choose our ministries and to carry out ministries, we feel the Holy Spirit leading us. We need to bathe every ministry and every ministry decision in prayer like these disciples at Antioch did. We should never count on our own wisdom, our own strategizing. We should never count on our own desires and our own preferences to shape ministry. We should rely upon the guidance of God and we should, we should seek confirmation of that together as a church. We need more than just pastors and deacons praying about what ministry we would carry out. We need the whole church bathing these things in prayer. We need the whole church asking God, lead us, direct us. We want to carry out ministry effectively in the name of Jesus and for the hope of the nations. But God, we need your help and direction to do this. So we've seen that Jesus gives the church, local church authority to protect the gospel of Jesus, to protect the reputation of Christ, to call their own leaders, to carry out ministry as they see fit under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And finally, 
Jesus gives the local church authority to do only what Scripture permits and to do everything Scripture commands. To do only what Scripture permits and everything Scripture commands. We stated in the first week of this series that the Bible, God's Word, is our final authority for all things pertaining to salvation and godly living. It is also our final authority for shaping and guiding the local church and the way that we govern ourselves. As Christians, we are called to do all things for the glory of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one. whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And this means that even though we have as a local church the autonomy to govern ourselves, to affirm the membership of our body, we have the authority to call our own leaders and the authority to determine and to carry out ministry as a church, we do not have the autonomy to do anything that we want. Carte blanche. The authority of the local church has been given to the church by Jesus, whose name we carry. And the church is in every place subject to obey Jesus. Every church will have to give an account to Christ for how we have exercised the authority that he has given for good or for bad. So when it comes to the matter of membership, who we bring in and and whose profession of faith we affirm as a church, we may not admit as members those who are not believers that Jesus is the Christ, that he died for sins and that he rose from the grave. Because God's word prohibits us from doing this. And we must protect the testimony of the gospel and our brothers and sisters from patterns of unrepentant sin in their lives. Now hear me, friend, this morning on this point. Even if your name is on a roll in a church, even if you're considered a member of the church, but you have never come to really give your life in faith and trust to Jesus, who died for your sins and rose from the dead, you don't have hope of salvation because your membership is in a local church. Your hope for salvation, your, your, your affirmation that you are right with God who made you comes not by the word of the church, but by your faith in Jesus Christ. So on the one hand, it is for the church to affirm its membership. But dear friend, don't count on the church as the, the final authority on your membership because the church may be practicing that wrongly. Know that salvation comes as a gift of God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that he saves you to make you new and to lead you to live a life of holiness that reflects his character. And and the hope and joy of the gospel to the world. When it comes to choosing our leaders, elders, deacons, we may not call any pastor, elder, or any deacon who does not fit the qualifications of those offices in scripture. Likewise, since Scripture clearly assigns these two offices of elder and deacon, we really should not think of them, much less call them things like CEOs or boards of directors. That would be unbiblical. We should use the words that God has given us for the offices that he's given to the church. At the same time, there's no limit to the number of pastor elders a church should have, nor of deacons to care for the physical needs of their body. And there seems to be freedom, even within the New Testament, in selecting others outside of these offices to lead specific ministries. At our church, we have a a director for children's ministry in Becky Henderson, who carries out that that job and and directs that ministry with excellence. We have a director for youth ministries in Corey Jones, who he also leads that ministry with excellence. Neither of these are elders or deacons. They're they're, uh, they're on our ministry staff, and there's, uh, there's freedom in Scripture to, to, to get, you know, kind of ferret out those, those different details in the church that way. Finally, when it comes to ministry, we may do anything that Scripture permits, 
And we must do everything that God's word commands. When it comes to ministry, the task of making disciples and caring for those in the world in the name of Jesus, we may do anything that ultimately does not violate scripture in taking the gospel to the lost. We may do anything that does not violate scripture in growing disciples. We may do anything that doesn't violate scripture in presenting every member, every Christian mature in Christ. But friends, we cannot do anything less than this. We cannot do anything less than make disciples, take the gospel to the lost, present everyone in maturity to Jesus. If it behooves us to affiliate or to associate, to cooperate with other local churches or with other agencies like we do with the Southern Baptist Convention, with the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. If it behooves us to affiliate and associate with other churches to get this work of making disciples and getting the gospel to the nations more effectively, the good news is that there's freedom in Christ to do this. And by God's grace, Southern Baptist churches like ours have been doing this with effectiveness for 175 years together. Jesus gives the church authority to do only what Scripture permits and everything Scripture commands, and there's freedom in that so long as we are submitting everything in obedience to Christ through his word. Jesus gives his church authority to do a lot of things we've seen in Scripture. And this has been a distinctive of Baptists throughout the several hundred years that they have existed. But in light of the authority, the the power, the responsibility that Jesus gives to the church. We must exercise our authority as a local church with wisdom and much grace. We need to recognize that affirming professions of faith, calling leaders, carrying out ministry are no small task to do. And we must recognize that Jesus has given it to us, uh, really average people, to do these supernatural and extraordinary things. And we need to recognize that we need his help, his wisdom, his grace to get it done. We must recognize that we've been given much power. But with much power comes great responsibility. And our responsibility as a church is to depend upon Jesus for wisdom and grace to do what he has called us to do. The authority that Christ has given to the local church, not to an archdiocese, not to a denomination, not to a group of bishops, But the authority that Jesus has given to the local church, to us, to govern itself, it requires active prayer and active participation on the part of every member. This authority is is vested in all of us. Christ has called all of us to this. And this is a joyous task. So let us not shirk from it. Let us not be afraid to govern ourselves. Let us not be afraid to affirm professions of faith, call leaders, carry out ministry, do everything in obedience to Jesus. Let us not shirk from this, but let us embrace the challenge, embrace the responsibility with much prayer, with much wisdom, and with all of God's grace for each other as we do it. Jesus gives authority to the church to govern itself. It is to us to shoulder this responsibility with Christ's help and for his glory. Let's pray together.